Well, good morning. I'd like to invite our kids to head back to Transformation Station to be with their teachers. My name is Joel Smith, and I've uh, had the privilege of being a member here at Redemption Hill for the past two years. Uh, my wife and I have served as interns, uh, specifically in college ministry. And uh, sadly, in about a couple weeks, we'll be kind of transitioning out, following the Lord's call. But the elders have uh, granted me the privilege to, to speak God's word to you today. And so I'm honored and excited uh, to deliver a message from the Lord uh, this morning. So we're going to continue our series in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, going through our series in Christ. So if you have a, a copy of God's Word, would you please take that out, turn to Ephesians 6. We'll be going specifically through verses 10 through 12. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided underneath the chairs, you can find the passage that we'll be going through on page 979. Before we uh, get started in looking at God's living word, I'd like to just pray one more time um, before we get into the message. So, so pray with me. God, we thank you for the privilege to gather together as your church. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living, is active, and God, that builds up, Lord, and gives life. I pray, Lord, that you would be with me now as I speak your word, that you give me grace, Lord, to speak clearly, um, God, and that your word would go forth in power. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So war, war is a terrible thing. It brings destruction. Lives are lost. Societies are changed forever. And people that have been involved in war, affected by war, their lives are changed. My, my family actually has, has felt the effects of war. My grandfather uh, was, was a veteran in the Vietnam War. Um, he was a, a paratrooper, and uh, so he had many missions where he was dropped behind enemy lines, and um, many things that he has seen and witnessed have, have scarred his mind and, and scarred his heart, even, even to today. And, and so war is a, is a tragic thing. And, um, but honestly, war is something that was never intended to be in this, in this world. What we see in the scriptures is that the first man and the first woman uh, created lived in peace, in perfect harmony with God. But what we see very quickly is that they rebelled against God. And then when in this rebellion occurred, there was a chasm forged between God and, and humanity, and a spiritual war was begin to was begin to fought, was to be fought. The Bible tells us that there is a great adversary in Satan who leads who leads an army of of demons who are against God and against all people. And these evil forces, they seek to enslave us, they seek to separate us from God, but ultimately they, lead, they seek to lead us to death. And what this does is it brings about a war that's being waged each and every day for the souls of men and women. So although this language of spiritual warfare, it may sound a little strange to you or it may be kind of unfamiliar, I just wanna say that the, the scriptures are very clear that it is, it is in existence. Um, and it's a central theme to our passage today. So during our time in Ephesians 6 today, Paul, is, he's going to address uh, the spiritual war that's being fought each and every day. And he's going to give us some encouragements. And he's going to remind us that we can stand strong in the midst of this war. That we have a God who is victorious. So I think the main exhortation that I'd like to point out from the scriptures today and deliver to you is to be strong in the Lord and wage war against the spiritual forces of evil. So let's look together at God's word before we dig in. Look with me at verse 10. Uh, Paul writes to the, the church in Ephesus, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this, this specific scripture today, verses 10 through 12, but really this whole chunk, uh, chapter six, verses 10 through 20, it really occupies a significant place in the letter. Um, it kind of serves as, as a climax to the letter as a whole, and it, and it serves as a bookend, not, as the, not only to the whole letter, but also to the very practical material in chapters four through six. So if you've been with us uh, since the new year, you've known that we've kind of been tracking through Ephesians. And so uh, as we're tracking through Ephesians, this is where we land today is Ephesians 6. And we can kind of sense just the importance of this text, even with just the first word of the passage. Paul says the word, finally. And in doing so, he's, atten- he's attempting to catch the reader's attention. It's almost as if he's saying, this is it. Make sure you don't miss this. Make sure you don't miss it. This is, this is very important. So as this passage is, is very significant in the letter of Ephesians, um, let's, let's approach it today with, with humility, asking God um, with great eagerness that he will work in us to, to shape us and transform us and, and to teach us. And as we go through this passage, I believe that there are two main exhortations. Um, the first being this, be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God. In the first two verses, verses 10 and 11, we see two imperatives, right? It's very clear. Paul is not playing any games. He gives two very clear imperatives. One, be strong in the Lord. And the second one, put on the armor of God. And in case you guys have forgotten your grammar, which that's okay if you have, Forget my grammar every now and then, you know. Um, but the first, in case you've forgotten, an imperative is a command, right? An imperative verb is a command. It's, not, it's something that we are told to do. It's not something we could do or, or that we, we might want to do, but it's, it's something that we must do. It's, it's a command. Um, so as we expound this first point, to be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God, let's kind of break down this, this first imperative. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This first imperative, be strong, it's best understood in the original Greek to be in the passive voice. That's another grammatical term. Um, just bear with me. It's, it's, it's meant to be in the passive voice. So we could translate that, be made strong or be strengthened. Um, okay, so this indicates that believers are not empowering themselves, they're not making themselves strong, but rather our strengthening is coming from an external source. And as we see in the passage, the external source is the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So really... This is a command to be strong in the strength of another. To be strong in the strength of another. Seems, seems kind of odd, right? But it's really a, a command to be strong in the strength of Christ. And I think if we look at the Apostle Paul's life, we can kind of see, man, he, he exemplified this. He, he lived this. Um, check out this verse on the screen from Colossians. Paul's talking about his ministry to the Colossian believers. This is how he characterizes it. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Did you see that? Paul is the one toiling, right? Paul is the one diligently working, but it was God who was providing him with the strength and making his work effective. So these two things aren't standalone. Paul also speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, he says a very similar phrase. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So it was the grace of God that saved Paul, 
And it was the grace of God that made his ministry so effective, but Paul didn't just kind of sit back, right, and just, I said, well, the Lord, it's all the grace, it's all the Lord's grace. No, he, he said, honestly, I worked harder than any of them, saying that he was diligently working. And so as we think about this command to be strong, um, it's not something that we just kind of, we're just kind of passive about. Our strength does come from the strength of another, but it's something that we've got to work towards. It's something that we've got to strive towards. Um, and this exhortation to be strong or to be strengthened, it's vastly important, especially when we realize that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle, right? Back in the days of the Roman Empire, when this passage would have been written, um, if a soldier was not physically strong, he probably wouldn't fare very well in warfare. If a soldier wasn't mentally strong, he probably wouldn't fare very well in warfare either with just the perseverance that it would take. His battles could go on days and days and days. Um, so in the same sense, if we are not spiritually strong in the Lord, we very seriously could be overtaken by our enemy whom we'll see later on in the passage is a very real adversary and a very powerful one at that. So just as the Apostle Paul exemplified, we are to be strong in the strength of the Lord. You're probably saying, okay, well, how do we do that? Hold on, we'll get there. We're getting there. So before we look at how we can be strong in the strength of the Lord, I think it's important that we just take a second and just look at what is the strength of the Lord. What is this strength that we're to be strengthened by? Um, and if, if you were with us back in January or February, you can probably remember the sermon when we went through Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. I'm not sure if you guys remember that, but in that particular passage, Paul prays for believers that they would know the strength of the Lord. Um, so he prays that they would know the strength of the Lord, and now at the end of the letter, he's, he's commanding them to be strong in the strength of the Lord. Um, so we can see, first and foremost, that the strength of the Lord, as we look back to Ephesians 1, that the strength of the Lord is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. Paul, in this passage in Ephesians, he prays that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. So the strength of our Lord Jesus cannot be measured. It cannot be quantified. And because of that, it cannot be contained. So the strength of our Lord is immeasurable. But not only that, the strength of our Lord is unstoppable. Um, we can see in the passage as Paul's praying for the believers, he's praying that they would know the strength that was on display when Christ rose from the dead. So death is the greatest power on earth. It is the greatest power. It's something that everyone in this room will one day face. You can deny it, I can deny that one day I will die, but it doesn't matter how far we advance as a society, death will most certainly come to each of it. It's a powerful force, but not with Christ, not with Jesus. We're just singing about this, right? Jesus rose from the dead, and so his power, his strength, that we're to be strengthened by is unstoppable. But not only that, one more. The strength of our Lord is incomparable. In Ephesians 1, Paul states that the strength and might of Christ is above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. So this is the strength that we're commanded to be strengthened by, a strength that's immeasurable, a strength that's unstoppable, a strength that is incomparable. It's a good command. This is good for us. I need strengthening. I know that I need strengthening. And if you're like me, in our day-to-day, -day, we can become very weak, and especially as we, pursue, as we pursue God and seek to follow after him. The Christian life is not some easy, peachy, clean life. It's a life that we've got to be strong in. So now let's address that question of how. How can we be strong? How can we practically be strong in the Lord? As we've already seen modeled by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, we can pray for strength. We can pray for strength. 
In Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays again for strength for the Ephesians. This is what he prays. He prays that according to the riches of Jesus' glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. And so we can, we can call out to our God in faith and know that he not only hears us, but he answers our prayers. Our God longs for us to be strong. He wants us to be strong and to stand in faith when the battles wage in each and every day. And so we can call out to him in great faith knowing that he will strengthen us. So the first way that we can just practically be strong in the Lord is, is to pray, It's to pray for strength. But secondly, as we've seen a practical way that we can be strong in the Lord, is we can forsake passivity and pursue the strength of Christ. Forsake passivity and pursue the strength of Christ. As we saw earlier in Colossians, we've got to strive to be strong in Christ. It is a command, right? We don't just lazily wait around for the strength to just magically come to us. We've got to seek the strength of Christ. We've got to pursue it. We've got to plead with God to strengthen us. And so there's, I got three quick ways that we can pursue uh, the strength of Jesus that I wanted to, to give you guys. But there are many ways, as you, as you open up the scriptures, there are many ways to pursue strength in Christ. The first, and maybe one of the most important, is through the scriptures. It's through the scriptures. I mean, if you, if you long for strength, if you want to be strong in Christ, you've got to be in the word of God. The word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God builds, it builds us up, it reveals to us who God is and reminds us of his truth. So to, so to pursue the strength of Jesus, we've got to be reading the word, seeking to meditate on it, seeking to memorize it. So how often are you exposing yourself to God's word? Is it just on Sunday morning? If it's just on Sunday morning, we probably won't be very strong. But if we're seeking to, to expose ourselves to God's word throughout the day, multiple times throughout the day, even if it's a little like five minutes here, little five minutes here, maybe 20 minutes in the afternoon, or, or however that rhythm looks for you, the more that you expose yourself to God's word, the stronger we will be, and the more we will be built up. But another way that we can pursue the strength of God is through being active in gospel community. We've got to remember that this letter to the Ephesians was, was written to the church, right? Not just individuals, it was written to the church. And I think that's, that's kind of profound. We find strength together, right? We find strength together. So as we gather this morning, man, we can, we can be strong together as we're fellowshipping before the service and after the service, and we can confess our weaknesses to one another. Man, AP3, when, I, when he walked in, I told him I was preaching. I was like, man, pray for me. He stopped right there and prayed for me. Man, that gave me strength. So we can, we can find strength in gospel community. This was four. Um, and so kind of just a couple ways that we do this at Redemption Hill is we gather on Sunday mornings, just, just kind of like I told you, but we also have community groups, smaller Bible studies that meet together in homes each week to gather together for this purpose and to strengthen one another in God, to speak the gospel to one another. Um, we also see that there's equipping opportunities that, that are all over the place at Redemption Hill, whether there be one for 136GO this summer and learning how to become a mature disciple and make disciples or uh, the SHAPE series that, that John Reddy's gonna do in his home. And these things are, are, are out there for our strength. We can be strong in Christ. And then the last way I just wanna point out and highlight is we can pursue God's strength through being engaged in God's mission. That may sound a little counterintuitive, like, wait a second, I thought I, was, I, thought I might need to be strong before I get, get in the game of God's mission. You know what I'm saying? Well, that, that's not how it works. God promises that if we would step foot in his mission and we would step out in faith, man, he, he will give us the power to go. He'll empower us to fulfill his mission. Um, so, so how are you pursuing strength? 
How are you forsaking passivity and pursuing strength in God? You're reading the word, are you in gospel community, are you stepping out in God's, in God's mission? Let's do that, let's, let's be about it. Um, and here's the beautiful part. If we each do this as a church, not only will you individually be stronger, but we together will be stronger. We'll be stronger together as a unit, as a church, God's church moving forward in the power of his spirit. Um, okay, so one, uh, one other way that we can practically be strong, and we can see it right from the text in verse 11, is to put on the armor of God, is to put on the armor of God. So in the next verse, Paul's gonna lay out that second imperative that I was talking about. And uh, it's gonna further answer this question of how, do we, how are we practically made strong in the Lord? So look with me at the beginning of verse 11. <clears throat> we're exhorted to put on the whole armor of God. So if we're gonna be strong in the Lord, if we're gonna prevail in the deadly spiritual warfare that we're all engaged in, we've got to put on God's whole armor. It's interesting, this exhortation to put on the full armor of God is the same verb that Paul used in Ephesians 4 when he encourages the believers to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so as we look at this verb to put on and what does that actually mean, we can actually look back to Ephesians 4 and say, okay, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to put on the new self? And, and what, it's, what it really is saying is that we've gotta be actively putting on the armor of God. It's not a one-time deal, man, I, I'm strapped up, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. No, you gotta, we put on the armor of God each and every day. It's an active thing that we do. And honestly, since we are engaged in spiritual warfare, I think you can glean this from the text, it just makes sense that God would armor us uh, with his armor. He doesn't just leave us to fight our battles on our own. He doesn't just leave us to kind of fend for ourselves. He provides us with armor. So just think about the functionality of armor for just a second. What does it do? Well, it protects, right? It protects. It doesn't take a scientist to figure that out. It protects. Um, it also serves as a weapon, right? It serves as a weapon. So it protects, serves as a weapon. I think a, a third aspect is it identifies our allegiance. If, if, you, if a soldier has on, has on, you know, the American garb, I'm not sure exactly what that is. AP, you help me with that. But if they've got on the American garb, you know that he's fighting for uh, uh, for the U.S. In the same sense, man, if we're putting on the armor of God, not only are we protected, not only are we equipped for the battle, but also our allegiance is declared to the world. Um, so if you're engaged in Christ, or if you're in Christ, you are engaged in spiritual warfare each and every day, but praise God that he has not left us to fend for ourselves. He has provided us with armor. So what is, what is this armor? What, what, what is this armor all about? What, what characterizes this armor? I think there are two things that are really clear in the text that we're uh, looking at in verse 11 here. First, we can see that God's, the armor that God supplies is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's sufficient for the battle. Notice that we're exhorted to put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor. And, it, and this kind of makes sense, right? I mean, this makes sense. If, if a soldier goes out to battle and he's got on his helmet and he's got his shield but didn't have a sword, dude can't fight. Dude can't fight. Dude can't, he's not gonna be effective in the battle. But in the same sense, if he goes out with his sword but he doesn't have his helmet and his shield on, he's not gonna last very long. He's not gonna last long. So we've gotta put on the whole armor of God. But not only just put on the whole armor of God, this armor is completely sufficient for the battle that we are all in. And so, really, this can be kind of hard for us, right? Because in our lives, we're so busy. 
we're so busy, it's like, man, do I really, next week Tanner's gonna chop up what these pieces of armor actually look like and how we practically put them on, but, but there are many aspects to it. It took, it took a soldier a long time to get geared up for the, for the battle in the, in the time of the Romans. So this command to put on the whole armor of God, it can be tricky, it can be hard for us, and it takes great intentionality. Um, but I would just, would just say that, and just as a Roman soldier, just as a soldier needs all of his pieces of armor, so, so we need them as well. No matter how much time it takes or how much of a hindrance it may be or learning how to handle the word, some of those things that you've got to do to put on your armor, just, it's gonna take intentionality from us. Next we can see that God's armor that he supplies us is powerful. It's powerful. Notice that Paul says, put on the whole armor, here it is, of God. Of God, it's the armor of God. So the, the armor that's supplied to us as, as his people is, is armor from the almighty God. So the same power that we just spoke of, an immeasurable power, an unstoppable power, an incomparable power, that power is the same one that gives us this armor. It carries with it that type of power, that type of force. So God's armor is the strongest. It's the most effective. It's the most reliable. So if we're, gonna, if we're gonna stand a chance in the battle that's being waged for the souls of men and for your own joy in Christ, we need the armor of God. We've got to diligently strive to put on the armor of God. And if you don't put on the armor of God, you will fall to the enemy. You will. 1 Peter 5.8 describes our enemy as, a, as prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So if you're not putting on the armor of God, you will be devoured. You'll be easily tempted into sin. You can be enslaved to sin, and you will lack the protection that God offers from our great adversary. So like I said, next week Tanner's gonna walk us through um, 13 through 20, which really outlines what these pieces of armor are and how they are to be taken up. But for our purposes today, just know that this armor that we're commanded to put on that is in his armor that is sufficient for the battle. And, we, and because it's sufficient, we must put on all of it. But it's also powerful. It's powerful because it's the armor of God. So what about you today, brothers and sisters? Where do you need strength? Where do you need strength? Where do you, where do you feel weak? Is there an area of weakness in your life where you need to ask God for strength today? Maybe you're anxious about sharing your faith or Maybe there's a coworker at, on your job who's, and just really, just kind of really rubs you the wrong way. You need strength to deal with them and to give grace. And maybe you're just struggling to find hope and joy. Maybe you just feel weak because, because you have no hope, or you have no joy. I wanna encourage you that we can be strong in the Lord. He longs for us to be strong in the Lord. And we can put on the sufficient and all-powerful armor of God. So in the remainder of verse 11, the goal of being strong in the Lord and putting on the armor of God is gonna become crystal clear. And then in verse 12, Paul's gonna explain a little bit of why we need God's mighty armor if we're gonna stand firm. So the second exhortation I have for you this morning is to wage war against the spiritual forces of evil in this world. Wage war against the spiritual forces of evil in this world. In the second half of verse 11, the goal of being strong in the Lord is, is put on display. This is what Paul says. I'll just read the whole of verse 11 for us. It says, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Four times throughout Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Paul uses this language of standing, standing firm, or withstanding. And really, it's conveying this image of, of holding a position, of, of resisting an enemy in battle. Um, so it's kind of like, like you're planting your feet and readying yourself for a force that's coming, that's going to be an impact. So kind of, I guess a helpful way to think about this is uh, if you're watching the Pats, right? They got their offensive line. Tom Brady's underneath the center. He takes a snap. Takes his three-step drop right looking down the field. His eyes are up, but his offensive linemen, what are they doing? They're standing there, standing against the enemy. They take maybe one step back, and then they're in that, they're in game, game position, ready to block for him. It's the same kind of imagery that, that Paul's given us here, to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in this passage, we're told that the enemy that we're resisting is the devil and his schemes. So as we, as we go through the rest of the, the remainder of verse 11 and then verse 12, and then next week as we continue this language of spiritual warfare, I just wanted to just do a little sidebar and just give you four quick points about, about the devil and about spiritual forces of evil, just so that we're clear, just so that we're all on the same page, because I know that there's a lot of things out there today that there's things that overemphasize the devil and, and, and the evil spirits, and then there's a lot of people that just say, well, they don't even exist. Both of those are wrong. So let's just take a moment and just kind of go through. I just want to give you four quick points about, about our enemy, our opposition, spiritual warfare. One, the devil and his demons are very real adversaries. It's, it's very real. Not to terrify you, but many times throughout Scripture, we see, uh, we see Satan and his, and his evil forces being very present and active in our world. Um, we can see even at the beginning of creation, right, we, we see Satan at work tempting Eve, right, tempting Eve to take of the forbidden fruit. And then even while Jesus was on the earth, remember when he was cast, he went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to fast? We see Satan there coming and tempting Christ, right? So the devil and his demons are very real adversaries. Second point I want to give you is that the devil and his demons, they oppose and try to destroy every work of God. That's what they want. They want to oppose and destroy every work of God. So that's on a cosmic level, and that's also on an individual level today, like for you and for me, like that's, that's what he's after. That's what the spiritual opposition is, is for. So on the cosmic level, you see it again. I'm gonna jump back to the, to the creation of the world when God created the first man and woman. We see Satan there tempting Eve to take of the fruit. And his goal there was to introduce sin to the world and so cause all of the tragedies that we see in our world today. That was the goal, that was what he was after. Now we know throughout the rest of the story of redemptive history, that our God is a God who is victorious. And so ultimately his goals are unmet, right? But his goal and his purpose in working is to oppose God and to, and to snuff out his work on a cosmic scale, but also on an individual level as well. And then also, uh, just to come back, as, come back to Jesus as he's in the desert and being tempted by Satan, his goal there was to tempt Jesus into sin so that ultimately he could not be a perfect sacrifice for your sin and mine and so thwart his rescue mission. But we know that that goal was unmet. Praise the Lord. And the third point that I wanna give you is that the devil and his demons have limited power. So we're gonna see in verse 12 that our opposition, the devil and his, and his spiritual forces are very powerful. They are very powerful, but a limited limited in their power. You know, the story of Job, we see that Satan coming and, and kind of asking permission to, to tempt Job and to throw some things his way. And the Lord allowed him to do that, to exercise some of that power, but he could only do what God permitted him to do. 
okay? So we do face great opposition, but he's limited in power. Jude 6 actually says that demons are kept in eternal chains. And also throughout Jude, he makes it very clear that Satan and his demons can be resisted by Christians through the authority that Jesus gives. That's good news. Um, And then in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually gathers 72 of his disciples and he sends them out on mission to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And when they come back, they have this special report. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So Satan and our adversaries are limited in power. And then the last point I wanna make is that the devil and demons, our spiritual adversaries, is they work off of our own sinful nature. They work off of our own sinful nature. And I I mentioned this briefly, but just to expound on it some more, there's really a pendulum that swings when we think about the devil and we think about spiritual forces of evil. We can swing on one side of the pendulum and we can say, man, this is a bunch of hocus pocus, this isn't real. Man, the devil and demons, they're not there. They have no effect in my life. They're not there at all. That would be wrong. And we could also swing on the other side of the pendulum and say, man, everything bad that happens in my life is a result of the devil and a result of demons. The sin that I can't get rid of is because, man, the devil's got me. The devil's got me in chains. And neither of these assumptions are true. The Bible makes very clear that we are all born with a propensity towards sin. We have a sin nature. And because of that, we naturally rebel against God and his revealed will. And through Christ, we're given the power to follow Jesus. We're given the power to obey. So what Satan and his demons do is they work to capitalize on that sinful nature. They work to prick you in that sinful nature. They work to to find a way to get in to cause you to sin. And so really there's no one to blame for for our sin but ourselves. Don't blame it on Satan. Don't blame it on demons. Our own sin is our own fault. So with this understanding of, of, of the devil and, spiritual, and the spiritual forces of evil that are against us, let's, let's move back to Ephesians 6. I hope that's helpful for you this week as we continue to talk about this, but then next week as we revisit this concept as well. Um, so look back at Ephesians 6 through 11. We're commanded to be strong and to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, the schemes of the devil. This word translated from the original Greek as schemes is referring to methods or strategies employed to accomplish a specific goal. The schemes are methods or strategies employed to accomplish a specific goal. So the devil's employing different methods for your unique situation in life. His methods are tailor-made for you and these methods are meant to destroy our lives and ultimately they're seeking to oppose God's perfect and good will for our lives. He's seeking to rob us of joy and seeking to draw us away from the Lord and into sin. So these schemes, like I said, they come, they come in the form of temptations in our lives. So he may tempt us to anger by kind of tempting us to stew on how that coworker mistreated you. That ever happened to you? It's happened to me. <laughs> Um, he may tempt you into sexual immorality, right? By, what well, this is a natural desire you have. Why would you suppress this? Why would you suppress You see that temptation is so subtle, but it's there. That's his schemes. Those are his methods, and they're tailor-made for you. So a method for a teenage boy is going to look a lot, di- well, maybe look a lot different. It'll just come in a different form than someone who's 65. It may look different, but the, 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 the concept is this, that the devil is scheming, and there is spiritual opposition that is tailor-made for you. So let me just ask this question. What's your greatest temptation today? Where do you feel it? Where, where do you feel that prick? Feel it at home? Feel it at, you feel it at work? Is, is Satan tempting you to, 
to be um, dissatisfied with your work? Is that what Satan's tempting you to do? Is he, is he tempting you to, to something else, sexual morality or, or some other way? I think it's really important for us to think about, man, what, what are those great temptations in my life? Man, what, where, am I, where am I tempted the most? What methods or strategies is Satan employing to bring me into sin? So I mean, take that question and think about it this afternoon or think about it later this week and then pray to God for strength. Pray for deliverance. Pray that God would give you the strength and then jump into some gospel community and tell someone, man, this is where I'm tempted. This is where I need prayer. Please pray for me. Pray that I would not become enslaved. Pray that I would have power to overcome this through Christ. So in verse 12, Paul's gonna explain further why we need God's mighty armor. And he's gonna explain further why we need to stand firm. Um, Read verse 12, or you can look at verse 12 with me while I read it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The supernatural, powerful, and cunning nature of the opposition that is against us makes the use of God's armor absolutely necessary. In our text, our struggle against the devil and his forces is described as wrestling. It's described as wrestling. So this is not a WWE match, all right? This is not some, you know, jumping off the top ropes kind of wrestling that's being conveyed here. It's not some where things are planned out, no one really gets hurt, and it's just this game, this wrestling match. That's not it, that's, that's not it. The word in the Greek is a term that would have been used to refer to hand-to-hand combat. That's intense, that's a struggle, that's war, that's brutal, that's nasty, hand-to-hand combat. So it would have been an intense struggle and it would have been a matter of life and death. Paul's saying that you are wrestling against them. That's who, you're, that's who I'm wrestling against. That's, that's what we're doing. Do you realize that? It's intense. And then he goes on to make the point that we're not, we're not fighting, we're not wrestling, we're not warring against flesh and blood. This is an intense battle with powerful spiritual forces. So listen, the Christian life is not about opposing other people who are flesh and blood. If someone's promoting that as Christianity, it's wrong. But we do fight opposition that is spiritual. We do fight spiritual forces of evil that are seeking to enslave people in their sin and seeking to draw us away from Christ. It is war, the Christian life is war. And the devil and his minions are not small human foes that we could somehow muster up the strength to conquer ourselves. We need divine empowering to overcome these foes. So it's tempting you to sin, working to keep you and your loved ones from Christ is an enemy that can only be defeated by divine empowering. Paul goes on to stress the power of this enemy that we're wrestling against as he describes him in verse 12. He describes them as rulers, as authorities, as cosmic powers over this present darkness. Powerful. In modern scholarship, there's some debate as to who the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers are, if there's some kind of hierarchy. Um, You can get lost in those arguments, but what is absolutely clear is this. Paul is trying to get us, the listeners and the readers, to understand the weight of the battle that is being waged. He's trying to get us to understand, man, this opposition that we're facing is strong, is powerful. I really like what this New Testament scholar, Peter O'Brien, says about this passage. You can read this on the screen with me. He says, Paul's point is that the Christian life as a whole 
is a profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions in which the ultimate opposition to the advance of the gospel and moral integrity springs from evil supernatural powers under the control of the God of this world. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the battle that is being waged for your joy in Christ and the eternal salvation of your friends, families, and coworkers who are separated from God. This is serious. The evil one and his forces are scheming to keep the eyes of unbelievers veiled to the truth of the gospel, to ultimately keep them in the dark, following after the ways of this world, to ultimately lead to eternal separation from God. The battle has grave consequences. And for you, Christian, for me, as a follower of Jesus, he's after me, he's after you, to draw us away from God, to push us to put joy and hope in things that are, that are separate in this world instead of in Christ. So let us not be a community of people that are ignorant of the spiritual warfare that's being waged each and every day. Let us not be ignorant. So let me ask this question. What hope is there? What's the hope? What's the hope? If our enemy is so great and so powerful and is such, so much against us that we're having to put on armor each and every day, what hope is there? There's immense hope. The decisive victory over the powers of evil against us has already been won by God in Jesus Christ. The decisive victory, decisive victory over the powers of evil has already been won in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The two goals of Satan and his powers is to draw you to sin, to keep people in sin, ultimately to lead to death. These are powerful forces, but both have been conquered through Jesus Christ. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus, our God, our captive, has given us the victory. Jesus came to this earth on a rescue mission. He knew the strength of our enemy, he knew the sins that we have committed, and he knew the eternal death that awaits us because of them. Jesus came to earth and he lived a life unaffected by the temptations of the devil. He lived completely sinful. But he didn't just come to do that. He came ultimately to rescue sinners like me, to rescue sinners like you. He came ultimately to destroy the power of sin and Satan by dying on a cross as a ransom for the world. And his death on the cross, the wrath that I deserve and that you deserve because of your sin was completely satisfied. And in his resurrection, the victory was secured. And it is now available to be apportioned to all who would turn from their sin and place faith in Christ. Do you know this victory? Do you know this victory? It doesn't get any better than this. And so let me tell you, if you have turned from your sins today, if you've turned from your sin and you've trusted Christ for salvation, the victory is yours. It's mine, it's yours. So we who are in Christ, think about this, we, we are in the midst of a war that has already been won. It's already been won. This doesn't mean that we just kind of hang back. Now what does, it, what does it mean? It means that we can fight confidently. We're living in kind of an already not yet state. Jesus has won the victory over sin and death, but the battle is still being waged on earth. 
And it will continue to be fought until Jesus Christ returns to this earth to completely disarm these spiritual forces that are against us and to destroy all those forces of evil and restore the earth with peace in his presence. We fight as victors. I mean, think about that. If a soldier is in the midst of war and he knows that the victory is his, he knows that the victory has already been won, do you think that changes the way he fights? I think so. I, I think it changes the way he fights. If he, if he knows that the victory is his, the victory is secured and it cannot be taken away. Man, a soldier, I think that would bring immense confidence for someone in war. Man, they know that, and they don't have to sit back on the back lines. They know that they're not gonna get hit. They, they have this feeling of invincibility. They can, man, they can go to the front. They can take risk in war because they know that victory is theirs and victory is coming. So I think for us, it should be the same thing. I don't, I don't see why it should be any different. We're in the midst of a spiritual war against a foe who is great, against sin and death, which are grave consequences. But we fight as victors. We fight as those who have victory in Christ. So we ought to willingly take up arms against these spiritual forces of evil. We ought to get excited about passages like the armor of God where we can now find tools and weapons to, to fight this spiritual battle. We ought to take risk in the spiritual lives. We ought to not pursue our comfort not to just stack up on this earth. Man, there's a war that's being fought and a victory that has already been won. Shouldn't we fight for that? Man, sh- shouldn't we take some risks? Like, man, giving away possessions. I don't see a brother in need. I don't live for this earth anymore. I should be able and willing to give away earthly possessions. It should, it should do things like move us to take risk in our jobs. And maybe God's calling you to move from outside of the city into Medford so that you can make a bigger impact here. Maybe it would, God would call you to do that. Maybe it would be something as simple as kind of reaching out to that neighbor who's always kind of avoided you and having them into your home so that ultimately you could share the best news on the planet with them. I think since we're victors in this spiritual war, it should change the way we fight. It should change the way we follow Christ. And the thing is, as we do that, God will strengthen us and empower us, but he will give us invincible joy that will be untouchable by this earth. So brothers and sisters, we're in the midst of a spiritual battle that's already been won. The war is over the souls of men and women that we love, over your own joy. How could we not joyfully and willingly join the Lord in his glorious mission to seek and save the lost? How could we not? So to conclude our time, I just wanna ask a couple questions. The first one is this. Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from your sin and placed faith in Christ for salvation? Have you done that? And do, you, do you know, do you know that you have turned from God and that God has saved you? If not, I plead with you, please, to do that today. Or to at least question, to at least think about it and think about the grave consequences that are there for those who haven't. Find someone who you know is following Christ and just talk to them about it. Or maybe God's calling you to do that today and I, I call you to respond. I call you to respond to Christ's call. The enemy against you is too great to defeat on your own. You'll never do enough to make up for your sin. Your sin against God will most certainly lead to spiritual death, but victory and salvation is yours. You can have it if you would but turn from sin and place faith in Jesus. For those of you who have placed faith in Christ for salvation, are you standing strong in Christ today? Are you standing in Christ's victory? Are you actively seeking to be strengthened by God's grace? Standing, seeking to stand strong in Christ. And let's pray for strength. 
Let's forsake passivity and let's pr- pr- pursue the strength that the Lord gives us. Redemption Hill Church, I love you. I do, I love you. I love you and my wife loves you. We've really enjoyed our time here and we're so thankful for the work that God's doing. So thank you for allowing me to join you in this mission for the past two years. I'm so thankful for the ways that you've invested in me and that you've given me strength and given my wife strength. So thank you. I can't wait to return to this church in 10 years as we come back from India and to see you standing strong in God and seeing his mission as it's advanced in New England to the ends of the earth. I'm excited for you and I'm grateful for our time. So let Redemption Hill Church be known for its love. Let it, let it be known for its love and devotion to our God who is victorious. And let's play our part and let's join God in this glorious mission to seek and save. Redemption Hill, stand strong in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. That Lord, although we do fall to temptation, although we do sin, that you have given us life, that you've granted us victory over sin and death, and that we can stand strong in Christ. Lord, would you move us to pray for strength, put on your armor, Lord, to to join you in this victorious battle against sin and death, to carry this good news to the ends of the earth, to all people, that they may join us in this victory in Christ. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit to give us grace. And we need you, Lord, to enable us to stand strong in Christ. Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.